Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program where we take a diverse look at cars and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we look at the latest news stories, including Richard Hammond's crash. Tell me more about the car. We chat to resident Overdrive artist Dean Oliver about the sad passing away of photojournalist Nick Munting and the time we travelled to New Caledonia together to watch a car rally. We road test the Honda Odyssey and in our panel discussion with Errol Smith we take a carefree look at a story about how we might judge a car in the future. Have a question or a comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Now to begin the program, let's have the news. On June the 10th, 2017, Richard Hammond, once of Top Gear fame, crashed and wrote off an electric vehicle supercar. We learnt a lot about his broken knee, but what about the car? The Rimac Concept 1 is manufactured in Croatia by Rimac Automobili, established by Croatian Matt Rimac from what started out as a hobby. They started manufacturing in 2013 with a car that had an output of 811 kilowatts, that's over 1,000 horsepower, and an acceleration of 0 to 100 in 2.8 seconds. They have claimed that it is the fastest accelerating electric vehicle in the world. Last year, they announced an upgrade for 2018. The power will now be 900 kilowatts or 1,224 horsepower, and it will accelerate to 100 kilometres an hour in 2.3 seconds. It will reach 200 kilometres an hour in 6 seconds, and the 300 kilometre mark in just over 14 seconds. They aim to have a range of 330 kilometres, but probably not at those speeds. The acceptance of electric cars is enhanced by having halo vehicles such as this that show that the technology can fulfil the wildest fantasies, unlike the Prius Hybrid, which is seen by some as the epitome of left-wing environmental policies. But if your hero car crashes, it might set the widespread acceptance of a different future technology back a step or two. Rimac has said the cause of the crash is unknown at this stage. Transport service providers are coming under increasing pressure to do more about pollution. In what often appears to be a science-free debate, some suggest that climate change is not an issue, therefore the inference is that we do not need to worry about pollution. But local pollution and its harmful effects is now more than enough for us to push for major changes. At times, London has recorded worse pollution levels than Beijing. More and more medical research is highlighting the adverse health impacts of pollution. Major programs are being developed that give much emphasis to reducing pollution. The EC has just launched its Europe on the Move strategy for clean and connected mobility. We are getting more information. The world's first high-accuracy citywide air quality monitoring system is being built in the Helsinki region. More information is becoming available to the public. Google has released its first map showing air pollution levels captured by its street view cars over the course of a year. And more groups are starting to push the cause. In Australia, the Electric Vehicle Council has welcomed the Finkel Review's recognition of the important role of electric vehicles in the future of the national electricity market. Groups are challenging governments in court to take the issue further. And some car companies are taking a broad view, including consideration of climate change and an approach that helps the customer 
at every step. David McCarthy from Mercedes-Benz in Australia. The key, though, is where the electricity comes from that you're using to recharge it. There's not a lot of point in having the exhaust pipe in the Latrobe Valley. (laughs) Yes, indeed. And that's why we will be partnering with an energy company that will, and and, and that will be, there'll be renewable energy and you'll have the ability to have solar installed on your house and the storage batteries. So if you're going to go electric, well, it does need to truly be emission-free. A parking space in Hong Kong has just sold for the equivalent of 873000 Australian dollars. With an area of just 7.5 square metres, that works out at $50,000 a square metre. The purchaser is Quan Wei Ming, Executive Director of Hurarong Investment Stock Corporation. The parking spot is located in The Upton, a high-end apartment building in the San Ying Peng district. Sanging Peng has a railway station, a tram system along the Davo Road West, many bus routes and even taxis, but these are unlikely to interest Mr Kwan. Nor would using the nearby parking station, in which he could rent a space for 144 years, for the same price as his own. Was the invention of the bicycle the result of a climatic catastrophe? 2017 is the 200th anniversary of Baron Karl von Drace first riding his invention of a wooden-framed two-wheeled device with steering that you propelled with your feet on the ground. Europe had had bad harvests from 1812 to 1815, and the 1815 eruption of Mount Tambora in the modern-day Indonesia disrupted weather patterns all over the world and led to Europeans calling 1816 the year without a summer. Crops failed and horses starved, and so folklore says that this alternative form of transport was invented to fill the gap. New forms of transport have changed our whole existence, yet they are rarely accepted immediately. When railways were being developed, people said that travelling at such speed would cause seizure. At the beginning of motor cars, one state in the US had a law that said you had to stop your car and cover it whenever a horse-drawn vehicle went past. In Britain, you had to have someone walking in front of your vehicle carrying a red flag. The same happened with bicycles. When roads were too rough to ride on, cyclists used footpaths, leading to the devices being banned for a period. There are many lessons here for how we adapt to new transport technologies. And just a few notes and news on motoring topics. Adam West, the television Batman from the 60s, has died. That he made it to 88 years is highly credible given the dangers he faced. A friend of a friend of mine actually got to drive his 1966 Batmobile. And he said it was a horrible car, clearly only made for looks. Safety and comfort were not on the agenda. And while talking about famous actors, we reported a few weeks back on the death of Roger Moore and how we thought that his acting was limited, but the cars he drove were always a great feature. A listener seemed to confirm our opinion when he has noted that Roger's main acting technique was to raise one eyebrow. You're listening to Overdrive. Sad news that avid motoring journalist and photographer Nick 
Munting has passed away at the age of 66. Now, Dean Oliver, Overdrive's resident artist, and I knew Nick from many years ago when we travelled to New Caledonia to go into the rugged rural areas, stand by dusty roads and watch rally cars. Seemed like a good idea at the time, and indeed it was. Nick was enthusiastic, ebullient. He was a lad who always looked for the positive. To reflect on those memories, Dean joins me on the line. Dean, what did uh, Nick go on to do after we had uh, met him? Hello, David. Yes, well, uh, wonderful memories of Nick Munting. What a lovely fellow he was. We first met him when we were following the Southern Cross car rallies back in the 1970s, and uh, Nick was a a photographer and sort of part-time journalist at that time. His little company was called Focal Photography, he had an old Toyota Corolla with focal photography on the side of it, and uh, we spent some very cold nights in the mountains behind Port Macquarie waiting for rally cars to come through. And uh, he was a lovely fellow, a real enthusiast, a good photographer, and he had a, a good eye for photographing rally cars as well. And he went on to edit Checkered Flag. Yes, after that, he um, editor of Checkered Flag magazine, uh, which was a motor racing uh, magazine, set up, I think, as a competitor to... Racing Car News, the venerable magazine that it was. Yes. And then I think Nick then moved into public relations. I think he was for a time with uh, Daihatsu when they were rallying their Daihatsu charade. He was. He was indeed. It goes back to a time when he was filming, quite literally, with Kodak film that he had to wind in and, and load up. It was not nearly as processed as quickly as things might be now. You had to have an eye for it. Yes, and I, I think photographers had to plan their photography. They couldn't just press the button and take you know, 50 images. You had maybe a motor drive that might take two or three or four photographs, but you had to think about what you were doing and plan your, your photography. I think in some respects that made for better photographers. Not just go for bulk, not just quantity, but rather quality. Although I do remember when we were in New Caledonia that he had run out of film and he had to load the film just as... Jean Ragnotti was coming around to do this glorious sweeping left-hand bend in a big oversteer slide. He loaded the film and took 10 shots all within 20 seconds. But he, he had planned that that was what he wanted to do. It's just that they're running out of film caught him off guard. <laughs> Young people listening to this, David, will have no idea <laughs> of, the, of the complexities of, ro- of loading a roll of 35mm film into the back of a camera at night time uh, <laughs> when you can't feel your fingers because they're so cold. Ragnotti was in a little Renault Alpine, wasn't he? Certainly when we went to Numea, uh, Ragnotti was driving one of the X-Works Datsun 710s. Oh, was he? Right. Which had competed in the Southern Cross Rally, and then the team shipped the cars across to Numea to do the safari, the New Caledonian safari. So any other memories, Dean? Oh, look, I remember seeing uh, Jean-Claude Ragnotti driving that Datsun uh, 710, the works car. It was right-hand drive, and so the navigator sat on the left-hand side of the car, And the roads in New Caledonia were, of course, driving on the opposite side of the road to here. Hmm. And Ragnotti was coming, flying through to the end of the stage, crossed the timing line, and then as he slowed down, he threw the car into a spin so that the car stopped with the navigator's side right adjacent to the control official. (laughs) So the control official uh, didn't have to run around the car to um, initial the navigator's card. It was very spectacular. 
And there was a whole tribe of Australian drivers there too. We saw Doug Stewart, who was driving for Mitsubishi at the time, but he had an old Volkswagen Beetle, which they called the La Cochinelle, and they got it bogged in, in the side of a sandy road, and in getting it out, the engine bay sort of filled up with sand, which got blasted through the, the engine bay by the, uh, the air-cooled motor and uh, sort of sand-blasted the inside of the back of the car. All right, Dean, good to talk to you, mate. Thanks for your time. Thanks, David. And that's Dean Oliver, and we were talking about a colleague that we had met many years ago in that wonderful world when we, you were young and you went out and experienced things without any luxury but a whole lot of fun. You're listening to Overdrive. Honda strive to give its Odyssey people mover a sexy image. You may remember the ads of parents kissing in the front seat, only to have the camera pan back and you see the children looking on in disgust. The message is you might have children and need a practical car, but you can still have comfort and image that fits a feeling of youthful desire. But Errol Smith and I have just driven the latest model, which has a mild makeover from the one before. Can I use it to drop off the children at the babysitter, then cruise into the city for a night at the theatre? Errol joins me on the line to determine this quandary. Errol, you are not a great fan of big people movers? Well, I mean, it's it's difficult to make them sexy, isn't it? Yeah. Because they just have to be big and generally have three rows of seats and... So, I mean, Honda, Honda did that, I think, with their, their previous models, whereas I, I feel with this one they've, they've sort of gone a little bit it's, – it's sort of gone a little bit backwards from that, and it's a little bit more pedestrian and a little boxier. It's very much also the narrow, gawky sort of box look about it. A little mm. bit remind me of early model Mitsubishi Star Wagon. And I must point out the 16-year-old did not, in fact, refuse to be delivered to school in it. Now, David, we, we should qualify that by saying that you often take them to school in a sports car or something else. So I think he, he was um, not happy with being taken down to the level of all of the other kids being taken <laughs> to school in a people mover. He doesn't want to appear to be ordinary, I guess. <laughs> There's no question a Jaguar is uh, no problem to him at all. Yes. Uh, this one here, does it ride well? Very smooth ride and also very quiet. So it's a very car-like ride. It's not like, you know, some people movers are basically a delivery van with some extra seats, and this doesn't have that feel at all. It's a very car-like, smooth ride and very quiet inside. So I was quite quite pleased with that. Critical issues. Is it easy to sync the phone? Yes. It's, it's always okay. a bugbear with many things. And it's easy to, easy to find the controls and everything, except for the handbrake. Which is not a handbrake. It's a footbrake. Hmm. The only, only thing I didn't like about them was that the volume for the radio is you press the screen, you can't turn a knob down. Now, when I get in the car after someone else has been driving it and the radio blares and I've got a headache and I, I, I want to turn it down quickly, at one stage I think I had to actually get out of the car and turn it off and yes. control myself because I was getting frustrated with it. Yes, well, the, the steering mounted controls aren't always as obvious as one would like. You sit up high in an upright position, of course. Are the seats comfortable? Yes, yeah, they were. And and we had the, the VTI, which is the base model. Um, they're a quite nice finish on the seats. It was sort of this sort of tasteful charcoal velour sort of finish. Hmm. So, um, yeah, the seats were comfortable, but not, not a lot of adjustment in the base model. You get uh, a bit more in the, um, the VTIL if you're prepared to spend another, you know, 9 or 10K. The layout in the front, you like the fact you can, in some ways, walk between the front seat. Yeah, well, there's no sort of centre 
console or anything. So um, you can get up and, and walk between the seats and get in the back. So if you, you know, you need to look after the, the kid in the back seat without having to get out of the car in the, you know, pouring rain or cold or heat or whatever. So you're quite practical from that point of view. There's a sort of a cup holder slash storage bin which sort of pushes down sort of down and in out of the way so to make it easy to get to get through into the back bit like the old volkswagens uh, the combis used to have that room as well the uh, 16 year old didn't like the look of it but he loved the idea that you could get in the third row of seats as far away from us as possible (laughs) those three seats they work well and fold down well yeah, well, they fold completely flat into the floor. In fact, if you took a quick glance, you might not even realise they're there. Uh, so they, but they fold up, and then they, the space that they occupied then becomes a much deeper boot. So um, you get pretty good storage, you know, either way with them, them up or down. The features with it, uh, not perhaps a lot in the base model. No, no, you get uh, dual zone climate control, um, which is sort of front and rear. There's not a lot in terms of you know active safety or any of that kind of stuff on on the base model. You get a reversing camera, but um, that's about it. There's no, there's no GPS and there's no active safety features at all. And even if you go up to the VTIL model, it doesn't act out a lot compared to what you can get in some passenger vehicles these days. I mean, there's no sort of lane departure warning or active you know, radar crews or any of that kind of stuff, even on the top model. What's the cost worth? Um, you're looking at, um, you know, depending where you are, about 42 grand, give or take, to drive one away with the VTI model, which we tested. And the VTIL model, with which is, has the more bells and whistles, is about about fifty-one, give or take, depending where you are. So, all right, Errol, I appreciate your comment. Uh, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much. No worries, David. Honda Odyssey is what we were talking about with Errol Smith, a people mover that once had a degree of elegant style, but now has become just a little bit more basic in its looks, but reasonable in its performance. You're listening to Overdrive. And we catch up again with Errol Smith having talked of a road test. Now let's talk about how road tests might be in the future and with some quirky news. Errol, thanks again for your time. No worries, David. Jonathan Daly, he calls himself an urbanist, which means he's looking at places where we go to. Now, Errol, you go to places to shop and other things. Why do you like them? What do we say about what we'd like about an area? Now, the point is... Doing a survey after you've been there is not really much good at all. The reason being is it's all past and we often then try to rationalise why we did it. You don't Mm. try and say, I went there because it's dungy and I like cruddy places or things. Mm. You might have weird reasons for going, but you never particularly be prepared to say it. And you may not recall how you really felt about the place when you were there. Yeah. Mm. Yep. When you get up in the morning and say, I will go to that place, the reasons might be quite different to even when you get there too. Everybody goes somewhere and then forgets why they went. Why they went. Well, no, that's, that's my personal organisation. That's the problem. <laughs> Jonathan Daly just gave a paper at the Asian Pacific Place Leaders Conference. Place being how do we design urban areas that creates a sense of place, not just a function, you know, we have roads and bus stops and seats and things, but how people react to it and feel of it as a sense of place. And he measures people, not just by a survey afterwards, but as they walk around, he has things that are eye-tracking glasses, so he knows where people look and how long they look for. He has EEG headsets, heart rate and skin sensitivity, and he walks beside them and asks them questions as they go. Now, Errol, would you be happy to be part of a survey such as this? Certainly sounds like a bit of a lab rat setup. 
but um, um, but I, I see where where he's going because you can what your eyes actually look at even for the quick glances gives an awful lot away about what interests you and uh, what what attracts your attention. That could be a problem, Errol. For good or bad, yes. <laughs> it doesn't. It's it doesn't. The technology doesn't judge. It only observes. But the technicians who assess the data might well make conclusions. Yes, yes. And and the other thing they can do is they can sit down with the person afterwards and say, well, this, you know, this particular feature of the building grabbed your attention. You know, what 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 does that uh, what does that mean to you? And they can sort of, you know, perhaps notice that certain things raise their heart rate for or or whatever else happened in their uh, their physiology at the time. Hang on, he doesn't go that far. The interesting, <laughs> the interesting point is they have used this to some degree in measuring, as you said, architectural things, that people walk down the street, look at buildings, and they don't just ask for a personal opinion. They, ask, they measure to see how you react to it. And I like that because I don't want a place in the city or in my urban shopping areas to be just a measure of someone's aesthetic appeal. Darling, I love these colours and that's what the trend is now. This is what we've got to be. Or a wine connoisseur that says, oh, this is rubbish, when you're quite happy to drink it. I'd much rather have a range of people saying, well, we reacted in these certain ways. Mm. And this is the technology that could be applied to so other things where you want to gauge someone's reaction and get a bit more information than than what they just tell you, and uh, and road test is a, is one of those things. You can get get someone to look at a car and sit in it and use the controls and see what what attracts their attention on the dashboard and the internal controls and that kind of thing, and see how much time they spend looking for different buttons and controls. And yeah, there's an awful lot of information you can get from from this type of tech. I wonder if you record sound as well. You and I have talked about a number of controls on cars and computers in general where we have expressed a feeling, we have denigrated the character of the people who designed it. <laughs> yes, it's often with four-letter words. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that's the, think that's the, the part where the, um, the sensors measure an increased heart rate. <laughs> <laughs> Your point about, for example, the power of a car, if it's very powerful, you don't want to go off and say, oh, I didn't like it, it scared me. Yet mm. if you measure that, you might get a much nicer response to it, nicer, a much more accurate response to it. Mm. Yeah, and and it's sort of, I guess the hope here is that this type of technology will lead to better designed vehicles and, and as he's an urbanist, better designed environments where people feel a bit more relaxed and welcome and you can actually, you know, measure and confirm that in a, an empirical way rather than just sort of relying on on surveys of, of things. Of course, you've just got to wire them up like a lab rat to get the results, but the technology is improving and becoming more compact and, and less obtrusive as well to, to wear. I would like to see it being applied to public transport as well. We all think, or we all tend to think of public transport as the trip in the bus or the train, yet there's a whole approach to it, waiting for it if the bus is late or if it's mm. inconvenient or windy, that these sorts of factors really come into it. Windy's a classic example. 
these that's a factor that teachers know is when children are most likely to be distressed is on very windy days so if we were to design bus stops that didn't have as much wind effect on them we might have a much happier person and a person might not know to relate it to that so if you ask them Mm. a survey they might say well I thought that was a better bus stop. Oh, well, I guess I liked the paint, but it might not have been the paint at all. And and, and it might not have been, uh, I liked the bus ride, they might say, when in fact their actual physiology is saying that they're much happier waiting for and getting on the bus. Mm. Yeah, it might have been a comfortable bus stop that was, you know, well sheltered from the weather. Could be that simple. I also would like to see the feelings as we go along, because I find in buses a lot, that the jamming on the brakes. Uh, I, I was in a bus the other day, which in off-peak period was packed and I was standing and the bus driver went around a 35-kilometre-an-hour corner trying to be Sir Jack Brabham. And, <laughs> you know, we were all thrown about and you, you couldn't look at your mobile, you couldn't read a book, you couldn't do any of those things because it was just being tossed around like a rag doll. Yeah, such a rough ride, yeah. Well, they can add... Um... Uh, sort of uh, G sensors, you know. I'm looking um, for to these do that. things as well. So, um, I mean, everyone really has one of those these days in their phone. Hmm. So, um, so this technology that they're using is 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 portable, and you can you can now do that kind of thing where you can have some have it just on someone while they go through a a full trip from from home to the office. Hmm. So there's all sorts of information that that we can get from people, and it's a, a very very interesting area of. Of study that that affects everyone. I would like to see my measurements as I walk past various buskers. <laughs> well, you'll have the audio recording too, and, and maybe 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 a video footage of, of you dropping a coin in, or uh, or walking, or or, or or in in other cases walking to the other side of the footpath. <laughs> Equally, then you might have measurements on the busker, as when you drop a small <laughs> coin in. <laughs> You can measure his heart rate then. Yes. I went through a shopping centre the other day early in the morning, you know, about like 8.30, 9 o'clock before there were many shoppers, and they had music blaring. And I felt totally and utterly distressed. Uh, early-ish in the morning, I was not my brightest. And here's this stuff blaring away. Oh, I, I felt mm. completely distressed. That kind of thing that people that run these types of centres don't realise the effect it's having on people. This is the, the kind of tech that can that can let them know that, perhaps make their place a little bit more comfortable and welcoming. Oh, that's almost warm and fuzzy, Errol. That's what we try and do, David. That's wonderful. Errol, uh, thank you for your time for this program, both in Road Tests and in Quirky News. Thank you again. No worries, David. And that's Errol Smith. We were talking about measuring your real response to situations, perhaps even road tests or testing a car might be an example. You can hear a longer chat with Errol and I on our website or also the interview with Jonathan Daly, where we talked a little bit more at length on what he was doing, how he was doing it, and why he was measuring the real responses of people as they experience our urban environment.
And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, Paul, Justin, Dean, Oliver for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments of each of the features by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>